everyone, Chase here. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to tell you about a campaign for an awesome creator-owned book that's going on right now over at Zoop. Axewilder John is the story of a savage journey into the heart of a man driven mad by love, by hate, by power. As he is hounded by hordes of relentless enemies who will stop at nothing to reclaim what John has stolen. This is a real passion project for writer-artist Nick Patera as he's drawing inspiration from creators he loves, such as Frank Quietly, Jeff Darrow, and Mobius, among others. The book is also a deeply personal tale for Nick. He conceived a lot of the character and stories while his family was dealing with health challenges for his youngest daughter. Just like real life, the story is much more complicated than it might seem at first glance, and the axe-wielding barbarian at the heart of the story may be much, much more relatable than your average bloodthirsty warrior. The project's Already fully funded, so go join the campaign, and you're guaranteed to get this full-color, oversized, hardcover edition. Just visit zoop.gg to check it out. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. As you can tell from my background, I'm not at home. Actually, if you could see out that window right there, you'd see the Hollywood Hills. I'm literally 500 yards from Universal Studios, which is kind of cool. Uh, if only I got to actually go do any of that stuff. But when I travel for work, it's pretty much all work. I won't have time to do any sightseeing or even hop over to, uh, to Universal. Um, but... We're here to talk about the DC Comics for the week of May 3rd, 2022. Uh, that has not changed, and uh, Rocky's joining me. Good to have you back, Rocky. Sorry to miss you last week. Yeah, good to be here. Good to be here. So overall, I thought it was a pretty good week. There's some big books. Uh, Flashpoint Beyond gets its start. Uh, it's, I guess, its official start. You know, we had a zero issue to kind of set things up. Nubia Coronation Special tries to answer some of the questions still left by the Trial of the Amazons event. I used the word event in quotes there. Uh, Suicide Squad comes to a close. Batman uh, Beyond Neo year is pretty solid. Shadow War continues in uh, in the regular Batman issue. So, yeah, a lot of stuff going on. I thought felt like it was a pretty strong week. What did you think? Well, I, I hate – the problem with judging an entire week is that I risk generalize, generalizing. I mean the fact is I, have, I was very happy with some of the books. But if I had to basically go on the basis of majority, I, I actually was a little uh, underwhelmed by it. But there were some that really stood out for me. So I don't want to uh, – we'll, we'll get into it. But I there's – the bigger books I was more or less sort of uh, pleased with. But I was a little bit underwhelmed with, with – uh, with I would say the slight majority of them, but uh, we'll we'll get into it, and uh, I'm sure you and I will both give our rants and raves as they as as we feel they're due. <laughs> yeah, so let's kick it off with uh, Batman Beyond Neo Year. This is Chapter Two or Issue Two. It's from writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Max Dunbar is the artist. Sebastian Cheng does the colors. I did Yabitakar on letters. I gotta say, I, I've never really been um, a Batman Beyond fan to the point where. I ever read a Batman Beyond series on a regular basis. Uh, I think the most Batman Beyond I've ever read was probably the Future's End Weekly. He was a pretty big player in that. Uh, and it's not that I have anything against Terry McGinnis. I, I don't know. I just never really found anything that like hooked me into the character. 
But I got to say what uh, Lansing and Kelly have been doing here is really working for me. This whole idea of Gotham City as sentient and being really like scheming and manipulative, it makes sense, right? Like if there's that old cliche that a city is kind of the sum of its parts, you know, it takes on the, the personality of the people that live within it. If we're talking Gotham City, then uh, you can only imagine a sentient Gotham City would be about the most manic, crazy, manipulative uh, kind of entity you could imagine with all the different criminals and uh, obviously Batman having a huge influence on the city and whatnot. So I really am enjoying the fact that it's a sentient city I like the voice that Kelly and Lansing are giving to Terry McGinnis. Now, again, I don't know how accurate it is in terms of, hey, what characterization has been built up over the past, you know, 10 years or whatever, because, again, I'm not I'm not a regular Batman Beyond reader. But for me, it's really, really working. I don't feel like the fact that I haven't been reading Batman Beyond for the last decade matters. I feel like I'm getting everything I need here. Um you know, there are, I, I know some things like I know there's a gang called the Jokers or, or what have you, and they show up here. And so all that's fine. I have some tangential uh, information, and, and that certainly helps. Uh, the other thing that I got to comment on is the Max Dunbar art. He's got a lot of really large panels, either full page splashes or even double page splashes that he then puts insets in, smaller panels that are set uh, in those. It kind of helps him from having to do as, as many backgrounds. The backgrounds do tend to be a little light on the on those particular pages um but i don't mind it uh i, I actually love his art um it's a little it's it's not uh like what i would consider a typical dc house style but it's not far off from that it's got a little bit of a manga or an animated influence um but he's a little more detailed uh gives us a little more detail in faces and whatnot than you would expect in a like a you know straight manga style but uh his storytelling is really solid i particularly love what how he moves the camera around he gives us either a worm's eye view or bird's eye view to really uh keep it interesting for the reader and I, man I, I really think that this is something special if if you kind of like me and be like ah, batman beyond meh i would encourage you to pick up at least the first couple issues of this and give it a try because it's very compelling uh, kind of the mystery they're building and it doesn't feel forced, right? Like so often lately, the DC books have had mysteries like who's red X or, uh, or what's in the box. Uh, we're going to talk about, um, the Batman killing time, you know, what's in the box. We finally find out this issue that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, but so many of those mysteries have felt kind of forced this mystery of how Gotham, uh, became sentient, what other, villains might be behind it or antagonists it feels very organic so it's really working for me what do you think well i i gotta say i'm very i'm very happy for you that you're so excited for this and that you read that this and this approach to batman beyond resonates with you uh that that's really good to hear i i just to be honest with you it's the it's the very subject matter that i i don't find compelling to me but that's not a criticism of the story i i just i just I just find the whole thing of the a living Gotham. I feel I feel the opposite of you. Uh, I and that is that I the idea of a living Gotham as the villain. I'm not really sure how I. I'm not. I, I have a hard time find f trying to figure out where the drama is in that. Where how, how do you defeat that if 
every single computerized thing in the city, you're, you're, it's a losing battle. And then in this issue, the set opening issue, he, I, I actually felt myself a little bit lost. He, he, he finds himself confronting this squid-like creature and this squid-like creature is called Gestalt and it, it's connected to three other individuals and somehow it's sort of, I don't even know what it is. I think it's, it's its own computer virus of some kind that he wants to recruit this Gestalt creature as an ally to defeat the living computer that is Gotham City, which I thought, I thought the living computer of Gotham originated in the Batcave. Uh, back in in that in the well in, in any event I, I I find the the subject matter a little bit um, uh, maybe a little bit tropey and I don't really I'm, I don't find it as compelling as you do but but look it's only the second issue and you know look I can be pulled in here like this I think there is some potential here with this gestalt creature. I, I, I'm actually more interested in what we saw in the first issue with the character work of Barbara Gordon, maybe being the new commissioner. She was retiring uh, and she's thinking that crime's at an all-time low. Most people, including Barbara Gordon, the new commissioner, she doesn't know that, in fact, the crime is not at an all-time low. It's just being manipulated and, ve- and, and it's being almost controlled by this, this sort of, this, I guess, neo-Gotham computer program and... And that's what I find most interesting. So I found the opening issue compelling. I, I find where it gets to, it gets a little bit too ephemeral when it's getting into the, like, if everything's a computer program. And I like the character work. I like, uh, I like when we get character work for Terry McGinnis, Barbara Gordon. I mean, all, all, all these characters. And I'm less interested, I'm less interested in sort of like the Terminator type of setting that it's in. But, um, it's not to say that, uh, full disclosure, I'm, I'm with you. I didn't read a lot of Batman Beyond, and now I'm being pulled into it. And what this is very accessible. So as a compliment, I think it's very accessible. And I, I think it's up to readers to decide whether they fall into your camp, where they find it really compelling, or maybe a little bit more like, you know, maybe like me, where I'm hoping for a little bit more. But I uh, like I said, I uh, it's interesting. It's only the second issue. Uh, I think, to be fair, I'm going to give it the first full arc before I give it a recommend or not, but uh, it's, you know, I agree with you on the art. The art's fantastic. Uh, Max Dunbar in the art does, does a really good job. And uh, it's in, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes forward. And I'm really interested in, to see more of the rogues gallery of this, uh, of, of Batman Beyond, because I don't know a lot about this character myself, quite frankly. Yeah, I think part of the thing that has me hooked, I talk about that mystery, like, Gotham didn't just become sentient. Like you're right. Like the 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 sentient Gotham computer like broke into the Batcave, destroyed it. That's what we saw in in Batman uh, Urban Legends w- when the story kicked off. But there's somebody behind it. Like the city couldn't have just become sentient. There's got to be. So we're wait, We're sort of waiting to find out. And there's some hints about this this uh, character that we were introduced to. That's a lot of like illusion and light. And he seems to be very, a very kind of popular character on social media. And he, and Terry's uh, working on the, under the assumption that he's got something to do with the city coming alive. So yeah, a lot of mystery, a lot of questions to be solved. I guess we'll see how it plays out. Uh, okay. Up next, we have hardware season one issue number five. This is the next to last issue. It's written by Brandon Thomas. Pencils are by Dennis Cowan. Inks by Bill Sienkiewicz. Colors by Chris Sotomayor. Letters by Rob Lee. Uh, how are you feeling about this one? Last of the milestone, uh, first wave that hasn't finished yet. Uh, yeah, actually there's, 
unless my memory is uh, really screwing me up, uh, I feel that this is. It's been. I feel like it's been a long time since I read. Since I read an opening issue here on this, like I, I, I had to remind myself, and I, I, I haven't. Uh, reading this issue five, some of it was a little confusing to me because I couldn't remember all the players in the in the previous in the previous four issues, and so uh, I had to sort of. I, I still have to kind of remind myself a bit. Uh, I like. Uh, I like Dennis Cowan's art. I continue to like it. Uh, uh, Bill Senkevich or Senkevich? Senkevich. Senkevich on the inks. Uh, I I think it's, uh, it it works. The the colors, uh, I really enjoy the colors by Sontemeyer. I'm, you know, I don't mind it. In terms of the story itself, I thought it was, um, it must there must be another another issue because it seems to me that there's a lot more to uh that this sort of ends on a cliffhanger i mean uh, uh it the 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 person who is hardware Curtis Metcalf he was set up by Alva Industries and of course he's now he's managed to basically find the evidence needed to sort of clear his name because he was basically blamed for what led to the big bang which was the explosions that led to the basically the formation of all the milestone powers of all the milestone heroes. And so he's being blamed for that. And I thought that, uh, I think uh, Brandon Thomas has done a good job of weaving together with this uh, story uh, politics in a way that I, I think doesn't feel, I, I, that feels natural. It, it doesn't feel like it's uh, pandering or anything like that. I, I enjoy the narrative. Uh, it does, there's a lot of corporate corruption and, and, all the characters do have uh, everyone has a has a role to play and I wish I would have I wish that there, there wasn't the delays because I think I would have enjoyed this issue more had I not forgotten some of the key or plot points unfortunately in, in preparing for today I wasn't able to remind myself of, of, of the finer plot points leading up to this <laughs> but I, I was still captivated uh, I thought the art was great I, I do think that uh, this is going somewhere. I, I'm really intrigued by this new character at the end where there's uh, there's two full pages where literally, I mean, 18 panels were just, you know, I wasn't sure what was going. I thought, why are we getting, you know, basically 18 panels with the same image on it? And of course, it's it's this new villainous character. I'm not I'm not sure what his name is. Do you know the character's name? Is it, It's like, mul- it reminds me of Multiple Man or something for Marvel or what's his name? Uh a guy that can duplicate and create duplicates of himself. Um, yeah, I don't know if he says what his name. I don't know if they say. Yeah, multiplex. It reminds me of multiplex or something. A villain, but in any event, I it, it, it's, it's going to make for an interesting, uh, I think, showdown next issue. It'll be interesting to see how Brandon Thomas scripts that and how uh, artist uh, Dennis Cowan, uh, you know, artistically renders the that fight scene because a fight scene with that many players i think could be very interesting so i I am looking forward to next issue and to see how everything resolves and yeah uh all in all i I continue to enjoy the milestone run i think overall despite the editorial hiccups at dc i think despite the delays i think the milestone universe has been relatively well handled and perhaps even more editorially better handled than the rest of the titles of the dc universe in the different lines yeah i will say um you know, Icon and Rocket being my favorite of the Milestone, uh, Static probably coming in second, which leaves us in third. And I don't mean that as uh, 
a disservice to this because it's very, very good. If I have any nitpick about it, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there are there have been delays, and I think that's sort of out of DC's hands at this point. Yeah, Marvel's been delaying a ton of books too, all down to the the paper shortage and uh, and printing issues and what have you. Um, but the beyond that, I, I think the other part of this that maybe isn't working for me as well as it could is just how fast paced it is, and I I chalk that up to the fact that Brandon Thomas is an excellent writer. And, you know, he said as much when we had him on the show is that he always has, you know, a lot of ideas and oftentimes there aren't, there's not room. There's just not real estate on the comic page to put in all the ideas that he would like to. So I think that's the same thing that's happening here. Uh, I think that there's – it's really fast-paced and at, at times the narrative feels a little bit choppy. And I think that is because he's he doesn't have quite enough room to – kind of flesh out all the ideas that he that he has i mean curtis metcalf in the story has traveled halfway around the world and back again um that's a lot in five issues and so you know we're, we're skipping over parts of the story that i wish we could see a little more of visually uh and it also makes for a little bit of a, a wordy book because a lot of things are covered in exposition that characters are saying so you have to read it very carefully otherwise you'll you'll miss things you'll miss uh, either key interactions between characters or, or plot points that are uh, not necessarily shown on, on the page. Um, what is shown on the page by Dennis Cowan, excellent line work. I don't know that there's anybody that does, uh, that inks Dennis's line work better than Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh I think I heard Bill recently say something about, he feels like he could, he's inked Dennis so much, he knows exactly what Dennis is going for in a particular panel or a particular image. And he could almost ink Dennis in his sleep uh, at this point. So, yeah, the art is fantastic. The color work's fantastic. Um, I'm very curious to see how this all winds up. And, and really, like, how does this wind up in terms of what's the end game for Metcalf versus Alva, Edwin Alva? And, and does that leave a place for uh, another story in season two of Milestone? Um because it really feels like they're heading to a final confrontation. You know, I almost feel like you could, and again, the denseness of the story that Brandon Thomas has created, this could have been like three arcs. Uh, it would have been really frustrating. It would have been moving a lot slower. It would have been more in depth uh, and maybe some more emotion coming across the page. But with the delays that would have, I think it would have harmed the book uh, more than having this really dense story um, but it almost feels like this is going to be the final confrontation. So then who's the villain in, in season two, right? I mean, do they decide to introduce new characters? Like what's going on? Because like Rocky said, DC's done a great job of uh, – or Milestone really because they're, they're sort of separate. They've done a great job of homaging the work they've done in the past. So uh, big fan of it. It is Milestone's version of, of Iron Man, but it's really so much more than that. So I am, I am enjoying it as well. Uh, okay, let's move on. Next up, we have Batman Killing Time, number three. This is written by Tom King. Art is by David Marquez. Colors by Alejandro Sanchez. Letters by Clayton Cowles. We finally find out what's in the box, and it's the greatest treasure that Ra's al Ghul ever was able to, to find. There is a, a flashback. We start learning what some of the ideas behind these flashbacks are. There's some artifact called the Eye of God, which was taken from a church by a family. A family went to the church and asked for it. There, there was a belief by uh, a young son in the family that he could use it to raise his older sister from the dead. 
because um, she had died unexpectedly. I think it seemed like it was from an illness. So he puts it on her chest while she's in her coffin and does does not leave her side, like stays there kneeling and praying next to her coffin to the point of he, him dying of exposure, either, you know, um, no water, no food, whatever. He dies of exposure. He's so convinced that this artifact, this eye of God will bring his sister back to life. And so eventually it's buried with her. And then Ra's al Ghul, decades and decades later, centuries actually, unearths it and, and has it and gives it to Bruce Wayne um, during sort of their final training mission. And, and Bruce, there's a scene where he's going to, he's up in the mountains, up in the Alps probably, uh, or wherever it is, Andes maybe where, I think it is the Andes, where Ra's had his stronghold and he was trained and Bruce is going to throw it away. And at the last minute he relents and decides to keep it. And that is what's in the box. That is what, I mean, we don't actually get to see the artifact ever. It's very much like um, the Marcellus Wallace mojo in Pulp Fiction. You know, whenever anybody's looking at it, you get that glow, but you never actually see it yourself. Uh, and one thing to keep in mind is this is a, this is a Batman who's only two years in to being Batman. So Bruce is not as formidable as he'll be later on. And that's really showcased in the fact that he gets his, I won't say he gets his butt kicked, but he loses a fight. He loses a, f a physical fist fight with a guy known as the Help. So this guy, he works for the Penguin. He's kind of a contractor who the Penguin hires, and it's kind of one of those things like, "Oh, I'm in this really terrible situation. Uh, I need somebody to help me out. Who should I call?" Well, you call the Help, and that's what this guy is. And he, I love the way David Marquez draws him because he. He's not overly muscular. He's not really big. He's got a lot of lines in his face. He's clearly aged. He's clearly seen a lot and been through a lot. Uh, but just the way he talks in a very proper way, he's almost like a butler because uh, he's the help, you know, that idea. Uh, but, man, he, he does kick Batman's butt. So there's a lot of great stuff in here, a lot of cool character scenes between Catwoman and Riddler. Uh, King is definitely building a, a really fun narrative. I agree with what he said about, you know, there's not a whole lot you need going into Batman killing time. It's just this big popcorn blockbuster Batman story. Um, but I will call out once again that he said, yeah, I'm, I'm not pulling a bunch of narrative tricks. I'm just telling, you know, straight story from A to B. Well, it's not that straightforward. We do have the flashbacks. And even within different issues, uh, he's not going, you know, this happened and then this happened and this happened. No, he's going, this happened at 10 a.m., Oh, by the way, this happened at 9 a.m. And this other thing that happened at 8.30, and now we're back at 11 a.m. So he is jumping around a little bit, but there are timestamps that make it really easy to follow. Um, but it's not quite as straightforward as he led me to believe when he was on the show the last time. But that being said, uh, I, I'm, I'm down for more David Marquez, um, Tom King collaborations because I think they work very well together. David Marquez, while his style is not quite as polished, uh, purposely so, not quite as polished as Mikhail Yanin. His art does remind me of that. It has a very similar aesthetic in terms of very super heroic, um, a lot of medium shots, really uh, classic storytelling, very classic comic book art. Um, again, just everything medium shots, about six panels a page, uh, very clear storytelling, which uh, probably helps more than then you realize when you're doing reading a Tom King book where it's not linear um, as opposed to, you know, more complicated art like Clay Mann where in the Batman Catwoman, it's three timelines. It's very hard to follow sometimes. So I'm really enjoying this. 
Um, kudos to Tom King for not dragging the mystery out of what was in the little box. Happy to have that answer it already, even if we haven't seen it. What do you think, Rocky? Well, first, let me just say that we, we still don't know actually what's in the box. We just know that Razal Gall, it was the most prized thing in his possession. We actually, we still don't actually know what it is or what it does. It's the eye of God. It's the eye of God. We've just never seen it. Well, we don't know what it means. We don't know what that means. We don't know what it does. We, it's. I, I think that uh, now, frankly, we can guess. Now, I guess you know it's. Uh, well, let me let me let me backtrack to that because I, I share your criticism a little bit that this this story is made a little bit disjointed. It, it it's actually a linear tale. Essentially, this particular issue, all that happens is that at the end of last issue, Batman knows where where the Riddler and Catwoman are going. They're going out to a cabin to sell the trinket that they stole to a buyer. They get to the cabin. Uh, they wait for the buyer to show up. Riddler answers the door. It ends up being the help. The help shoots the Riddler. And then fortunately, Batman gets there. And as the Batman is fighting the help and getting his ass handed to him by the help, Catwoman and the Riddler flee. They, they steal the Batmobile and they take off. And that's pretty cool. But none of it takes place in a linear manner in the story. Uh, but in any event, what I find most interesting about it though, and I'm going to give Tom King some props here. While it was a little wonky with the, with, with, with the timestamps and everything, it was kind of cool because of the help. I'm really, I really like the help, this help character. He's a guy who I love how Tom King scripted the, the battle sequence between Batman and the help. And as the help is talking to Batman and Oh, you know, I like the fact that the help when he's fighting Batman, he's actually identifying what styles, what fighting style Batman is using as they're fighting. Because often, it back in, in, in numerous Batman comics, we'll often get Batman narrating a fight scene where Batman talks about the fighting styles of his opponents. Here, that that script is flipped, and we hear the help point, you know, pointing out to Batman, ah, you're using a style of David Kane or Richard Dragon or, or Henri Ducard, or you learn that from Ted Grant or, or Al Gull or even a young black canary. And, uh, like all these references to the, to the different fighters in the, in the DC universe. I want to give Tom King props for that. For a guy, I, I will find myself criticizing Tom King at times for not respecting DC continuity in the past, even though I might've liked the story. He gets a little wonky with continuity. I actually like the fact that he's given call-outs here to the great fighters in the DC universe, especially since this is only year two around there of, you know, this is a younger Batman who still has much to learn. And that's exactly what the help tells Batman. You're really good. Uh, in fact, that's probably why the help didn't kill Batman is because he was that impressed with him, but he's still not good enough. I find it interesting that the help has a very certain code of conduct, and yet the help violates his own rules, even though he's hired by the penguin and the help usually doesn't ask any questions. The help is intrigued and he he suspects he knows what it what was stolen, and the help wants it because the help the help wants to wants to use it for something as well. And except we're not really sure, uh, you know, why does the help want the, the help suspects he knows what was stolen, but why does he want it? And I'm thinking it has something to do with immortality or prolonging life or resurrection. But what I find odd about that is if this eye of God has to do with resurrection or life, why would Razal Gaul want it when he has the Lazarus pits to, to keep him alive? So I'm not really sure if that would be it. And why would he give it to Batman? You know, Razal Gaul wanted Batman to have it because it's a way of offering him his legacy. So I'm not sure it necessarily has to do with immortality. So I'm not sure what it symbolizes and I'm not sure what the dying child 
uh, you know, with the boy at his at his sister's grave that in the past, I'm not sure how that's connected to it. So I so even though we, we know this is very important and we're given more clues, I, I'm still intrigued by it. I'm still really intrigued by it. And I, I love this character of the help. To my knowledge, I believe this is the first appearance of the help. I've, I'm not familiar with that character. I believe this is a new character. And uh, if it isn't, somebody can correct me, please, in the uh, in the comments, uh, those watching this on the YouTube channel. But uh, I'm intrigued by this. And notwithstanding the wonkiness of the of the flow of the narrative, uh, when I stand back and piece it all together, this is a this is a very interesting story that's taking place. And I, I am enjoying it for that reason. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think it is the first appearance of the help, uh, as far as I know. Um, I, I agree with you about, yeah, probably something to do with immortality. Um, and that's why he why he wants it. As far as why Roz would give it to Bat Batman, I mean, it's this priceless artifact that, again, he doesn't need, to your point, because he has the Lazarus pits. Why not give it to, to Bruce? He does, you know, we know that Roz Good has point. always been infatuated with Bruce and, and wants, you know, considers him his heir, at, you know, more so than Damien. Uh, well, at this point, there is no Damien. Damien doesn't exist, so... Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, up next, the Nubia Coronation special. Tons of writers on this one. Well, two writers, <laughs> not tons, but tons of artists. Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala are the, are the writers. Marguerite Savage, Colleen Baran, Daryl Banks, Jill Thompson, and Aletha Martinez are the artists. We have Marguerite Savage, Colleen Doran, uh, Hi-Fi Jill Thompson, and Alex Guarmas on colors, and then Becca Carey on letters. Uh, this was a 40-page giant Again, wrapping up some stuff from Trial of Amazons. What do you think, Rocky? Um, yeah, I'm just bringing it up here. Uh, this, uh, well, that I actually, <laughs> there's so much to say about this. I, um, I, I've got, um, look, I think there's some redundancy going on here, but I want to, to be fair to what DC is trying to do here, they're clearly trying to prop up Nubia, and that's that's a good thing. We want to give we, Queen Nubia is is a basically a character that's always been given short thrift in DC's past, so it's it's nice to see her stand as uh, you know basically uh, become a queen in her own right. Now it it is a little bit underwhelming because of Trial of the Amazons. Queen uh, Nubia was already a queen; she was appointed by Hippolyta. This is a formal coronation special, but. Uh, to the to the credit of the the writers uh, Stephanie Williams, Vera Ayala, they have decided to at least uh, give us an I think an, an interesting backstory to to Nubia, and because one of the things that we knew from Nubia from the Nubia Queen of the Amazons uh, six issue series uh, by Stephanie uh, Williams and Vera Ayala, we knew that one of the we we knew that she basically has a past before she came to the Well of Souls. Nubia was the last Amazon to come through the Well of Souls before it essentially collapsed. And here, for the first time, we're, we are it is revealed what her past life was. And in her past life, she was actually a general. She was a princess and a general. She was a princess Zahava uh, living uh, in the country of Madagascar. We're not sure when that uh, took place, but uh, one, I guess perhaps one can assume it's uh, thousands of years ago, and she where she was a general, uh, again a general Zahava, and she was a princess, and she had two pet saber-toothed tigers, and very majestic here. The the art by uh, 
uh, Savage and uh, Colleen Duran and uh, is very well done. Uh, the story here is one of betrayal. She's a general. There is a war. She ultimately goes to, uh, she's sent on a mission by her king and she's ultimately betrayed. She finds out that part of her mission was to it involved actually killing of a child, which she refused to do. And upon her refusal to kill a child as part of her mission, uh, she was actually betrayed and, and killed. And ultimately, that was her final death before she was reborn again through the Well of Souls and became an Amazon. And she's remembering this. She's remembering this because she's baptized. As part of her coronation ceremony, she's essentially, I guess, baptized with the three oracles. The, the three oracles of the three Amazon tribes are essentially, it, it appears to be, baptizing her in the, in the waters of, of Themyscira. And it's during the baptism that, that Nubia has this flashback and experiences all of this. And I think it's very interesting. I, I, I think the backstory is it's pretty cool. I, I can't wait to learn more about it. I think that that it, you know it presents some interesting elements to the history of Nubia that she's remembering and how she brings that experience forth with her knowledge as as now that she's Queen Nubia. Are any of these characters, these characters that she knew thousands of years ago in a past life, are they ever, are they you know presumably all those characters are dead? But I mean, I gotta wonder this. Uh, you know, the the person who betrayed her, I'm sure, is long dead. But this King Oren, is, is he somehow going to make an appearance despite the fact that he's likely long dead? Uh, is the kingdom of Eridai, uh, which is what she was the princess in, is this, do modern day descendants in the king, still exist in the kingdom of Eridai? Uh, we don't know. These are questions that I think there, there's a lot to mine here from this new, from this new history of uh, Nubia, which I think is, is quite interesting in her past life. And I'm really curious to see uh, where that goes. Now, a couple of things that were, I think things get a little bit more problematic and where I can be a little bit more critical is it then flashes to, to present or to, I, to what I'm assuming was maybe five or 10 years ago where Nubia Enter, has an adventure in man's world and ends up defending a woman who's been attacked by by a man on the street and she ends up getting arrested and 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 it's clearly it's p clearly part of the narrative that she that Nubia is arrested because she is black because of the color of her skin and it's uh, a very interesting use of John Jones the Martian manhunter is the is a detective and a lieutenant in the police department and he actually comes to her defense and he helps her by telling her look uh, this is you know you know he he's he's basically telling her the narrative that you know basically the, the there's allegate you know the he references slavery and that, you know, man, man's world still has a long way to go and that we're still judged by the color of our skin. And, and Martian Manhunter, Jeff, uh, John Jones compares himself to her. He says, Nuba, you and I have more in common than you and Wonder Woman do because of the color of our skin. Uh, we are judged, we are judged unfairly by the color of our, our skin. And, and he talks about, you know, he, he talks about, uh, uh, that he, John said, John Jones says that we are still objects, you know, even though we're not categorized as property anymore, we're still seen as objects. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't think that that's entirely true. Uh, not in the 21st century, not, not in the eighties or the nineties. So I thought that, I thought that was heavy handed and I thought that was overplayed. And, and 
I mean, I get it. Uh, systemic racism is certainly present in in the eighties and nineties uh, when Nubia had, you know, well, in some sometime in the past, whenever she's having this conversation with John jo- uh, John Jones. Um, but it seemed a little bit heavy handed to me. If there's clearly there's still there might be systemic racism that still exists as a result of slavery, but uh, for Nubia to play to suggest that somehow man's world is not ready for her, uh, let's talk about the systemic racism that exists in Themyscira that still doesn't allow men on to set foot on their island. So the hypocrisy just is impossible to ignore here from from Nubia, in my view that. Uh, I wish I wish there would have been a little bit more of a recognition that that frankly the Amazons have quite a long way to go too dealing with their systemic uh, misandry against men. Just like if if we have a lot, to, we we as a society can certainly evolve to a place where we eliminate systemic racism. I, I think that it, it was a little bit heavy-handed to sort of you know suggest that somehow the only race that needs to learn anything is man's world. And again, I take issue with calling it man's world when 3.73 billion uh, women overpopulate men. It doesn't, it certainly removes the agency that exists in in our world. But um, having said all that, uh, that's how they're playing it. And I get it. Uh, Nubia doesn't think that the world's ready for her. Uh, It's hard to imagine a greater amount of narcissism than that. But the world's not ready for Nubia. John Jones doesn't think the world's ready for Wonder Woman because she because she's an easier sell, presumably because of the color of her skin. And there's certainly some truth to that. So there's politics here and it's going to ruffle some people's feathers. And I don't think it needed to be had it been scripted a little bit differently and and frankly, a little bit more, uh, frankly, a little bit more diplomatically. But it is what it is. uh, I actually like that aspect of it. I like that. It's and, and I, if I sound critical, I mean it in a good way because you can't avoid these issues. And I like the fact that the writer here, the writers aren't avoiding those issues. They're dealing with them uh, because Nubia is not a perfect character. She's not going to be a perfect queen, and we don't want her to be because that's where the drama lies. She's going to make mistakes. Wonder Woman's going to make mistakes. The people who make up humanity, man's world, we continue to make mistakes. So I like that. And there's a lot of potential here moving forward here. And I love the fact that at the end here, uh, actually, Queen Nubia opens up the mascara to invite the world and the world media to set forth, set set foot on the mascara. So I, I interpreted that as meaning that men can now attend Paradise Island. They can attend at least the floating island of, of the Mascara outside Boston Harbor. I think that's a good step. She's saying, look, you know, before we can start preaching to you, we have to we have to be open to the the rest of the world. And I really appreciated that aspect of it with uh, Themyscira opening itself up to the world as it wants to share its its wisdom and teachings with the rest of the world. But it still has a ways to go. It ends very curiously. I thought it was odd that it ended in the future with Nubia. It has a an imag- it has a story that takes place in the not so distant future with Nubia traveling to another planet, bringing peace to another planet with warring tribes. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I thought it was a little tropey and a little bit convenient. But, you know, I mean, if you can't if you can't create peace on on Earth, you're going to other planets and you're, you're doing. I just thought that was an odd choice. I, I think it's biting off quite a bit. But what I like about it, I like the fact that I like the idea of Amazons in space. I remember the uh, Mesner Loeb storyline with Wonder Woman in space. I would love to see. They even have a spaceship that, that 
Hecatus, the Hecatus, that they have an Amazon spaceship. And I love that. I love that idea. I would, I love the idea of Amazons having an adventure in space uh, or on other planets. Let's get, let's get, ha- let's get Amazons on other worlds and, and having adventures and spreading their, their wisdom and, and making their, making mistakes and getting into battles and wars elsewhere in, in the furtherance of their, uh, of their own Amazonian ideology. I like that. I think that there's so much potential here with this coronation special. And again, if I sound overly critical in parts, I mean it in a good way because I, I like when writers aren't afraid to dive into these issues. And I don't say, I'm not saying I have the right answers, obviously, but I like that it, it provokes me a little bit. I like being poked a little bit and having my sensibilities challenged. And that's what this writing has been doing on Wonder Woman lately, as I'm sure you've noticed, uh, Jace. And that's a good thing because it's it's getting, you know, I, I like it. It's This isn't by the numbers and it, I don't mind being prodded a little bit. And and overall, I, I enjoyed this. It, it, you know, it ruffled my feathers a bit, but it was also one of the ones that stood out most. And I think that's a compliment in the end. Yeah, it sounds like you got more out of it than I did. That being said, I, I could not disagree with you more about the whole systemic racism thing. If anything, it's worse than ever. So being that these are two writers who are persons of color, they're much better suited to speak on that than me. So I didn't feel it was heavy handed at all. I felt it was right on the nose, if, if not even sort of subtle on their part, not to to call it out, but maybe things are different in Canada than they are here. But uh, yeah, persons of color are treated like objects, treated as, you know, guilty until proven innocent, at least in America right now. And it's worse than ever. So again, I'll I'll defer to them. They're the ones that have to, to deal with it on a, on a daily basis, not only being, uh, you know, African-American, but also, female or, you know, Stephanie Williams identifies as female. And I think a lot of people, even though uh, Vita Ayala doesn't identify as female, a lot of people see her that way. Um, so, or see them that way, I should say. So anyway, yeah, they're, they're much better suited than, than myself. I, I thought that the jumping around in time, I, I didn't uh, appreciate getting the backstory and learning who Nubia was before she came out of the Well of Souls. I thought the, the Martian Manhunter story, for reasons I just said, was very appropriate and very good. The future story didn't land for me. Um, and overall, having the framing sequence was fine, but then having these three, you know, past, present, future stories sort of made the made the pacing feel a little weird um, and, and made the whole story feel a little choppy for me. Uh, is, there, is there some uh, positive? Yeah, there's more positive than negative, certainly in terms of the art. The art is beautiful, especially the uh, the colors. I think it's it's fantastic throughout. Um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing these two creators, at least the two writers, continue on with Nubia. Uh, it seems like she's going to have a series that keeps going, which is great. I think you know the more Nubia we can get, the better, because I think she is an interesting character and does have more to say than than Wonder Woman, which is which is sort of annoying in a way that you know Wonder Woman's been around for eight decades almost and they still can't get her right or have a defining era of her other than maybe the the Perez era in the early 80s or mid mid to late 80s I should say I don't know it just it just bugs me um that they they still haven't gotten gotten her right and it, go, it kind of goes to your thing about the whole anti-misogyny uh, anti-misogynistic thing I don't know that it's fair to compare racism to the sexism, because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about 
some sexism when you're not allowing men to set foot on the island. It's I don't know that those correlate, but I, I get your point. They they definitely are prejudiced, you know, and Nubia's sort of calling out quote unquote man's world for being prejudiced when they themselves, the Amazons, have their own prejudices against males. Um, so I 100% get what you're saying, and I think it was important that uh, Themyscira was opened up for the coronation for Nubia. Um, so that'll be interesting. I hope they continue to explore that. And I wonder if Williams and Ayala are thinking along the same lines as we are, is like, hey, you're calling out racism, uh, systemic or otherwise, in terms of Nubia appearing to be an African-American and her being persecuted when she's in man's world, but then you're turning around and saying, we're not letting any men set foot on our island. So it goes back to Wonder Woman's earliest origins, uh, William Mouton Marston, who was, you know, very sexist in a lot of his tropes and a lot of the things that he created. So there are some inherent problems with Wonder Woman as a character that are built right into her earliest incarnations, which can be problematic in, in today's day and age modern sensibilities. So uh, anyway, let's move on. One Star Squadron number six. This is written by Mark Russell. Steve Lieber is the artist. Dave Stewart colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Um, <clears throat> wow. What, what to say about this? It, it sort of ended on a whimper. We jumped forward after the end of last issue where heroes for you or whatever it was called burned to the ground. Um, and now we jump forward and kind of catch up with Red Tornado and, and where he is. Ultimately, it tries to end on a hopeful note, but it ends up just feeling kind of meh to me. Um, it certainly is Mark Russell trying to put his best foot forward in terms of saying, hey, all these terrible things they've gone through, everybody has their own crap that they carry around. Don't be too hard to judge other people because you don't know what other people are going through. Um, and in the end, we can all be heroes. So it's all sort of cliche. And even with this hopeful ending that he goes for, this whole, this whole series ends up feeling pretty depressing, um, which in a way, the Steve Lieber art, he's like kind of the perfect artist to have drawn this because he definitely gives us some, some realism and some emotion. Um, but for me, this series is not one that I would, I would recommend. It's not one that I would ever go back and read just because it's such a downer. And again, I get what Mark Russell's trying to say, um, but, and I think, you know, Rocky can speak for himself, but I think he's on the same page as me. But I, I read comics as a form of escape, to escape the, the stress and uh, kind of depressing parts of the real world, whether that be political or eco, uh, ecological or societal or whatever. So the last thing I want to do is read a comic that's a big downer that's reminding me of all the things that are crappy in our society. So that's why I wouldn't go back and read this. Not to say it's not a well put together comic. I especially think the scripting and the pacing from Mark Russell are fantastic. And as I said, the, the Steve Lever art in terms of being very authentic and real, because this is a very authentic and real and relatable story that deals with real world problems. Steve Lever is a perfect choice and his storytelling is fantastic. But all that being said, yeah, a, kind of a downer. So what do you think, Rocky? Uh, I agree. It, it very much is a downer. It The story wraps up, and it, it wraps up, I mean, with Red Tornado. Uh, I still have some issues with him, you know, uh, basically committing theft and uh, giving $50,000 of money that 
that wasn't his to give. He gave it to Minuteman so the Minuteman could escape. And then a Minuteman, in a fit of depression, tries to kill himself, unsuccessfully kills himself. But then in the process of recovering from his attempted suicide, essentially finds a, a, finds a new lease on life and lives in it. And so I guess for Minuteman, his life goes on. And Power Girl realizes that she wants to be a hero. She wants to focus on what she loves doing, and that is helping people. Uh, and... Uh, which is interesting. Uh, Power Girl uh, Kara uh, Sar is a former billionaire, and she, uh, at least at one point of time, she she gave away all her billions to the new Power Girl, which we've we've yet to see in the new DC Omniverse. But Power Girl has basically decided what we always thought she was anyway, and that was someone who likes to be a superhero. And uh, Red Tornado just decides that uh, he's he goes on and he lives his life, and that's really it and again this is um um this is very meh this is six issues where i this is it, it this is pretty much from a tonal from a tone point of view this is not the type of comic that i expect from dc uh because because to be quite frank i don't know this is like you said this is just plain depressing and there's not really much to get out of this other than if you if you if you feel down and out, and you uh, you you f if you feel down and out and, and you want to read about people whose lives might actually be worse than your own, then I and they're superheroes, and hey, uh, I guess I'm my life is miserable, and as long as I can read a comic book where the superhero's life is more miserable than mine, maybe I'll feel better. Is that the logic used to write this story? I, I don't know. Uh, but hey, every comic book is somebody's first and everybody everybody's entitled to get whatever they want out of a comic book. Uh, but I, you know, honestly, for the life of me, I'm not really sure that there was nothing profound about the lessons it described in this story. I mean, Minuteman basically at the end finds a new lease on life and becomes a pilot with, a, with his former drug dealer that he used to buy Miraclo pills from. Really? Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it had some funny moments. It had some funny moments, like in the second issue at the Comic-Con where Minuteman was put in Comic-Con jail. I still found that hilarious, that issue, but there was not enough humor that this, I would have rather, rather this have been a parody, uh, with more humor in it with this kind of ending. But, but other than one issue, this wasn't funny. So there wasn't enough funny issues to cushion the blow from the melancholy that permeated virtually all six issues. But so I, I generally agree with your sentiment. Yep, agree, hundred percent. Let's move on. Uh, okay, up next, Batman one twenty three. This is Shadow War Part Five. Too many bleeping questions. Joshua Williamson is the writer. Howard Porter is the artist. Tameu More on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, what do you think of this issue? Uh, well, I this is a uh, this is Shadow War Part Five. I wasn't uh, able to uh, review you Shadow Wars Part uh, Three and Four, but uh, quite frankly, we we. Uh, this issue has a shocker. We know that uh, we know that Deathstroke discovers he had a son, uh, has a son, respawn, and uh, what what happens this issue is is something that very clearly is going to set up something uh, very likely massive uh, for the future of uh, certainly of of Deathstroke, and uh, you know Batman and uh, and Damien continue to investigate. And, and try to locate, uh, they, they want to locate Deathstroke. And uh, they, they they tie in, uh, Williamson does a good job of tying in 
uh, even Bendis' Justice League run, where at one point in Bendis' Justice League run, there was, a, there was a bunch of Deathstrokes running around, and they do some detective work, and they discover that at one point in time, there was a third, there was a, a third party that was also looking for, uh, uh, for death, a, an older-style costume of Deathstroke, that same costume that was used by the individual who uh, pretended he was Deathstroke to kill uh, Ra's al Ghul. And, and then in the meantime, we know that Ghostmaker and Clown Hunter are taking care of Deathstroke's uh, other, uh, some of their, the League of, uh, you know, the League, their uh, Society of Secret Villains that, that Deathstroke's part of. Deathstroke and Respawn are basically fleeing from the forces of uh, the, the League of Assassins that Talia Gall has been sending, sending against them to take them out. And, you know, there's, uh, there's quite a bit... Uh, where this where this gets interesting is I think from a character standpoint of of, of Deathstroke this is it's almost a, this issue felt like a Deathstroke issue to me because what happens to Deathstroke here and even though we talk spoilers on this review in our DC reviews I almost feel like I don't want to spoil what happens because though anybody for fans of Deathstroke if it's one thing we know about Deathstroke is he's got a dysfunctional family but while Deathstroke might have a dis- dysfunctional family. He loves his family in his own way, and his family has all the dysfunction in Deathstroke's family with uh, with all his children that he's lost, and with with Rose, and now finding out he has a son, albeit one that might have just been cloned, but he still views Respawn. He's connected immediately to Respawn, and the fact that Deathstroke connected so immediately with Respawn, having just essentially met him as an adult, kind of tells you how almost desperate is, how desperate Deathstroke Slade Wilson might be to try to reclaim and redeem himself for having failed his uh his own son who died in the past and and so uh, the the loss that occurs at the end of this issue the impact that that's going to have on deathstroke moving forward and we are told going into dark crisis because we know at some point in dark crisis you know slade wilson here is still ahead of the of the uh secret society of supervillains here having taken over trust uh and we know ultimately at some point he might be fighting nightwing in in some of the teaser solicits of dark crisis you, 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 I'm beginning to see, we're beginning to see in this issue what has happened to Sleed Wilson to affect, to have an impact on his state of mind to lead him down a darker path. Because we know that Deathstroke, Slade Wilson, is aware of a dark crisis coming. He's aware of something coming and he is actually preparing for it. And that was his motivation to take over the secret society of supervillains. So the fact that he's prepared for it, he seems to have his own machinations that he's dealing with. How will this loss that he experiences in this issue, how will it impact his state of mind? I really like what Joshua Williamson is doing here. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I enjoyed the previous two issues as well, uh, which were last week, which I never had a chance to review with you. But I thought there was a, there was a good amount of buildup here. And in, in a relatively short period of time, and only when you think about it, Williamson only had like five or six issues of building up the relationship between Respawn and, and Slade. And I actually feel Slade's loss in this issue at the, at the end of this issue where he says, no, not again, not again, not again. I really felt it here. And I thought it, I, I thought it worked. Uh, I thought it worked relatively well. And I'm enjoying Shadow War. This is the best Batman event so far all year. This is, I think, better than Joker War. It's better than uh, Fear State. This is, in, in you know, kudos to uh, Williamson here. He's, I think he's doing a really good job with this Shadow War. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I didn't expect it to. I mean, we just got respawn, and now he may be taken off the table. 
Um, I have mixed feelings about that. It, it cleans things up, certainly. But, you know, going back to when he, we first learned that he was Batman's or he first learned he was Deathstroke's son, you know, shades of Christopher Priest's run on Deathstroke where Damien was rumored to be Slade's son. So I like that aspect. It, it opens up uh, a lot of story that can be that can be told. But taking them off the table keeps things nice and tidy as well. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. But it certainly was impactful. I did, I did not expect. You know, we just found out he was Deathstroke's son. Now they're killing him? Yeah. So I thought it was kind of kind of strange. Uh, in terms of the, the issue itself, this particular issue, other than that story beat, it's very fast-paced, very frenetic, which sort of suits the Howard Porter style of art. So I think that worked really well also. Um, but there's not a whole heck of a lot that happens in this. Like you said, Damien and Batman working together, which I talked about last time. You know, you, you didn't get to join me. But how uh, important that was and, and how great that was to kind of see them sort of reconcile and, you know, ag- agree to work the case together. And then they go to Blackgate. They interview, you know, former Deathstroke impersonator. They get the info and then they're off. Um, and, and then we get the scene in the alley. So, yeah, not a whole heck of a lot happens, but the story has really been ramping up the pacing from the start. It's been pretty fast paced and it only seems like it's getting faster. Uh, but I enjoy that because, um, you know, too many stories meander and the action never happens. You know, I'm not going to say any, name any uh, trial Amazon stories. Uh, on, you know, I'm not going to call any stories out, but. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's fantastic. I don't know that Howard Porter's ever drawn an issue of Batman either, so I, I kind of like that. Um, <clears throat> I will say, excuse me, the backup for me with the whole Joker thing, I'm not sure, Trevor Hairsign, Joker, I, I'm not sure. I mean, is it done? It says end when, is that just the end of the chapter? Is the end of the story? When it was kind of interesting, but not really. Deathstroke has some level of immunity to the Joker serum, apparently. It doesn't kill him, so... I don't know. I, I, that one just, I kind of feel like it didn't need to be there. I'd rather would have had a couple extra pages of story in the main, in the main series, yeah. but I don't know. It makes Anything me wonder if the backup story is, is going to be connected to the main story in some way, or maybe because of his connection with Joker and his, and his, the backup story, maybe something that happens in the backup story will play a role in the present that we're not aware of yet. I don't know. Yeah. I hope so because it, it doesn't it's it seems a little out of place. Yeah. So uh okay, up next we have Suicide Squad number fifteen. This is the final issue of the run. Dennis Hopeless is the writer, so no uh Robbie Thompson on this one. Hopeless, you know, had joined Thompson on the last couple. Uh it's called Defunded Part Two. Jesus Moreno does the art, pages one through eight, and then Eduardo Panseca and Julio Fiera on nine through twenty-two. Matt Herms does the colors for the first part, Marcelo Maiello for the second part, Wes Abbott is on letters. Um, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say about this one. Um, I really, really enjoyed the Robbie Thompson run. Um, and this just feels so different with Hopeless writing, you know, himself without Robbie Thompson on it. You know, we saw last issue that, okay, Amanda Waller's off the table. We know about the Warfare 3, how underwhelming that sort of was, but we know she's off the table. Rick Flagg apparently is trying to keep Task Force S task force X going on his own suicide squad going on his own. He needs money. They decide to rob Luther. Um, it's an okay story. I don't, I mean, in a way it shows Luther as being really formidable as he's 
a couple steps ahead of them the whole time, but then ultimately they beat them. They beat him rather. I don't know that this particular group of suicide squatters could actually defeat Luther, but I don't know with all the clones of match, I guess they did have the, the raw power. So I don't know. To me, this was just kind of meh. I, I almost wish that we didn't, that we didn't get this last, these last two issues and just had ended it on sort of not, not that, um, the Warfare 3 was a high note, but God, it, it feels like this isn't a worthy end to how good this Suicide Squad series was because um, Robbie Thompson did a fantastic job. Uh, the art throughout Eduardo Penseca art is, is what I'll talk about here. I know that we have another artist that does the, you know, the first part here, Jesus Moreno, uh, whose art is also very, very good. Um, but man, that Eduardo Penseca art, I just enjoyed it immensely throughout the run with... Uh, um, uh, Julio Ferreira doing the, doing his inks. Uh, I thought, I mean, they are just a fantastic team. So ultimately, this is a fun series. I very much enjoyed it. My favorite Suicide Squad run in a while. Very different tone than the Tom Taylor uh, Suicide Squad. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't end on on its best issues. I'll put it that way. So what did you think? Yeah. Well, I find it interesting. The whole premise of this two-issue story uh, following the War for Earth 3 is just the, the, the Suicide Squad, Task Force X uh, by uh, Rick Flagg, they need funding. So they want to get – their idea is to somehow prompt Lex Luthor to give them funding to fund their, to fund their missions by kidnapping Lex. So – like it's a ridiculous thing to expect to happen that if you kidnap Lex Luthor, he's going to just naturally want to fund you. Uh, it seems really odd, but I, I have to say it is fun. Uh, this is a fun issue because I, I actually found it very throughout the entire issue. Lex Luthor is a basically going about his business, and they they attack Luthor. He's doing numerous things during the day, and they're they're attacking him left, right, and center. And he always it's Lex Luthor, so he's a genius. So he always looking at all, all the defenses that Lex Luthor has when they're, tr when they're constantly trying to attack him was actually quite amusing. And eventually it was all a setup. So, uh, the, you know, Rick Flagg and the suicides and the rest of the suicide squad, they're not quite as dumb as Lex Luthor maybe originally thought they were because Lex Luthor was a little bit insulted at, at their early attempts to try to kidnap him, but eventually they won his respect. And by the end, and then at the end, there's a little tease here where, uh, Lex Luthor says, you know, he gives him the funding and he and he says, Task Force Lex? We'll see. So is this the tease of another series coming out, Task Force Lex? <laughs> that actually, I'm not going to lie to you. Of, of, I, I know probably there's ample argument that can be made that we've been inundated with Suicide Squad this and that and Task Force X, Y, Z and Z and everything, whatever. But Task Force uh, Lex? I I'm almost surprised that hasn't been done before because it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? But um, this was a lot of fun. And I actually thought that if this, if if they're going to end this series, at least end it on, on a fun note and with a little bit of a tease of what may or may not happen in the future. Amanda Waller's off the table. So why wouldn't somebody like Lex Luthor want to have his own Suicide Squad, it, it, you know, under his belt? So it even makes a crazy kind of sense. And so... You know, Pansica on the art, by the way, is fantastic. And I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to see this series end. 
And I, I'm kind of glad it didn't end with War for Earth 3 because I was disappointed in that. But at least it ended here with a little bit of humor and, and fun with uh, them getting some finding and uh, some funding and a little bit of redemption for uh, Rick Flagg, who doesn't didn't quite appear quite as incompetent, I thought, as he did in at the War for Earth 3. Oh, your, your mute's on. Your mute's on there. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I said, man, did he come off bad in that. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, World of Kryptons is the final issue, issue number six, written by Robert Venditti, drawn by Michael Avon Omin, colored by Nick Filardi, letters by Hassan Atzman Elhow. I don't have a whole lot to say about this final issue. Um, I have enjoyed this World of Krypton series, but we sort of always knew where it was going to end up, right? Like it's like watching a movie called the Titanic, you know, at the end, the boat sinks, <laughs> you know, there's no surprise. So we know at the end of this one that the planet's going to blow up. I mean, we don't actually get to that point. We actually, it ends on uh, the planet exploding, being about a year away and Lara and Jor-El are, are, are starting to plan the rocket ship and, and all that. So, Really, the the best part about the story was seeing the the relationship between the House of El and the House of Zod deteriorate, and seeing um, the context of society where everybody was just so wrapped up in their own stuff that nobody really cared to do the austerity measures or or that sort of thing. So it certainly gives a sense of what Krypton is, at least for current continuity, I guess. Um, but I, I don't want to say that this was the the weakest issue. But it, it sort of had the fewest, uh, like, impactful moments because, again, everything has been set up previously. And so e e there's nothing left to do but just kind of finish, right, to cross the finish line. So we see Jor-El um, in, in a fight with, with Zod that takes up the majority of the issue. He can't get Zod to uh, – to stand down on his plans of, of what he's been doing uh, in, an increasingly fascist uh, reaction to, to what's going on. And, and Hey, let's keep removing Kryptonians. Let's keep sending them to the phantom zone. All their criminals are there. Uh, and that's going to somehow save the world. And it's at the point where the chasm between the house of L and the house of Zod, they, they no longer can, can communicate. Not unlike certain factions in the United States where, you can speak the words, but you guys are no longer speaking the same language. Both speaking English, in this case, both speaking Kryptonian, but the words are falling on deaf ears because they've their ideology has split so far. So Jor-El ends up um, consigning uh, Zod to the Phantom Zone as well. So again, not not any kind of new story beat, not any kind of new information. It's still done well. I think the Avon Omin art works pretty well. I mean, this is the closest thing to a superhero comic that I've ever seen him do where I thought his art worked. I feel like his art's much better suited to, to crime noir, slice of life. Um, so ultimately I did enjoy this series, um, but I think its best issues were early on when it was sort of setting up the the status quo for the current world of, of Krypton or the, the world of Krypton that was the precursor to the current Superman, I guess is how I'll put it. Uh, but yeah, in this issue, there's not a whole heck of a lot of surprises. So what do you think, Rocky? Uh, I, I thought that, um... Just a couple of things, and and these these are nit, nitpicks. Uh, some perhaps less so, but I, I I wish it wasn't so close to the vest. Like Jor-El's uh, costume here, it looks too much like Superman's costume. I I, I think there should have been more uniqueness there. Uh, I I just 
you know, I get it that you want to, you know, why did, it almost looks like he looks exactly, he looks far too close to Superman, even right down to the boots. And in terms of the costume, I thought that was, I would rather, I think more, uh, artistically, I wish more imagination would have been put into the drawing of, of the, of the armor for jor as opposed to making it so frankly uninspired and basically a carbon copy of, of Superman. Uh, I mean, it just, it's too much of a coincidence for me. I wish they would have been more creative, like even in the, uh, Man of Steel movie, how how majestic Jarrell looked with that S symbol. I just thought that this was a missed opportunity to do something more creative and imaginative than what we got here. The art's good. I agree with you that Van Oming's art's good. I just think that he, uh, what he, uh, the the colors and and the, I think should have been should have been a little different. But that's that's obviously just my my bias, I guess. But um, I, I like what the series has set up in many ways. Uh, it, what it has to say. It did say some things which were different from tradition, from what we traditionally have understood about Kryptonian history. Um, this series does have subtle differences. Uh, Laura, it, it looks like Laura is the one that will choose and find the Earth uh, that that Kal will be sent to. Uh, you know, she took the bull by the by the horns and and looked for another planet uh, while Jarrell was angsting about not being able to save Krypton. Uh, it's interesting that the Kryptonians, all of the Kryptonians on the planet knew that Krypton is going to die. Uh, so it wasn't as we now know it wasn't a surprise to the people of Krypton that in fact, not despite knowing the, of their fate, they, 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 they still, despite knowing of their fate, did nothing to stop it. Or if they are going to do something to stop it, it's going to be in the next series because Brainiac has not shown up yet by the end of this issue, uh, to, uh, shrink the bottle city of Kandor. Uh, which is significant because I think uh, w- one of the one of the most interesting aspects of this opening first this first six issues to me is the the, the different types of approaches that the two brothers have engaged in. Jorel has tried to save Krypton by saving the planet, whereas Zorel, his brother, Supergirl's father, has been trying to has given up on trying to save the planet, but wants to uh, create uh, basically beam the populace to a survivor zone, sort of like a safer version of the phantom zone. And we know what will happen. We know that Zorel ultimately will be, exp- when Krypton explodes, we're going to have uh, a huge Argo city is going to, going to be where Zorel and Supergirl is. And we, we know, we know uh, what, what the ultimate fate of Argo city is. And we know that Kandor has yet to be shrunk. Brainiac is going to show up on, on Krypton to shrink the bottle sit Kandor and, and put that in a bottle. And so, I, there's more story to tell here. This ends, you know, it, it even ends saying this is the beginning. This is the beginning. And we know it's the beginning because we got six months to a year yet, according to Jarrell, and a lot's going to happen on Krypton before it explodes. And there's a lot more history to tell here. And all these subtle differences that uh, writer Robert Venditti has incorporated, I expect more subtle differences in the inevitable next series, which has been teased at the end of this one. So overall, I, I'm, I'm actually intrigued uh, by, by what we got here. And I, I, I hope for, I hope Venditti takes a little bit more, uh, is, is a little bit more aggressive and maybe deviating and, and, and throwing some bits and pieces in there. For example, Rogel Czar, is he going to incorporate Bendis's run? Are we going to get the origins of Rogel Czar or hints of that? Uh, you know, what's going to happen with Brainiac? Perhaps they're going to create spaceships. Why, why, why isn't somebody other than Jarell or, or Zarell trying to save the inhabitants building spaceships? I can't believe there's only two scientists on on Krypton 
trying to save the planet or trying to build spaceships? These these are questions that I have that I, I, I hope Venditti answers. But again, maybe I'm just expecting too much. But, you know, it's not bad. I, I, it's not bad. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure we're getting more, but I would welcome it. Yeah. So, uh, okay, up next we have Task Force Z. This is from uh, Matthew Rosenberg on script, Jack Herbert, and... Daniel HDR as the artist. I think Herbert's probably doing the pencils and Daniel HDR the inks. Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Chapter seven. Man, this was a, this was a great issue. At least I thought it was. What do you think, Rocky? Um, I thought that uh, th- this was an extremely fast-paced issue. Uh, I thought that uh, I actually thought it was. Uh, I wish it would. I wish it had slowed down a little bit. I actually thought it was. Uh, I had to, I found myself rereading it uh, multiple times, but uh, there, there's no question that uh, a lot happens here. Basically, the issue starts off with Jason Todd having essentially uh, what uh, Amelia categorizes as a one of the scientists, uh, one of the twin sister scientists of Task Force Z, describing as a psychic vision. Jason Todd discovers that in fact his life was saved by Lazarus Resin. So Jason Todd discovers that he was in fact lied to. And this, of course, greatly upsets him. Uh, but the fact remains is that we've got Two-Face who leads Task Force Z. And there's another task force that is sort of at war with Task Force Z. And then we have Amanda Waller that was manipulating both task forces. Amanda Waller's taken off the playing field. We know that from the War for Earth 3. So we got these two task forces that are essentially at war with each other, sort of battling for funding, funding but both have been defunded. And... I'm not entirely clear, but it looks as if there's a little bit of a war going on for this Lazarus resin. There's only a limited supply of Lazarus resin, and the uh, Jason Todd and uh, you know the whole group there, Task Force Z with uh, Mister Freeze, KG Beast, Bane, Two Face, and Jason Todd. There's only so much Lazarus resin to go around, and they got to use it sparingly. Unfortunately, Amelia and her sister, the twin scientists, they leaked to Mister Freeze that. There's just another Lazarus resin left to, to resurrect permanently only one person. So Mr. Freeze naturally steals it. He basically betrays the team. And what exactly Mr. Freeze is up to, I'm not sure. But we've got so much happens in this issue. We got a battle between uh, KG Beast and Copperhead. We got a battle between, uh, we, we got a confrontation between Bane and Solomon Grundy, which ironically enough is the least action packed because they're the only, they actually talk it out. Bane and Solomon Grundy, who would have thought? Uh, we've got uh, 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 Todd versus Victor Zaz, uh, Jason Todd versus Victor Zaz. And we got uh, Terry Two Face, uh, you know, diplomatically facing off with Jerry Powers and her team. And We've got, uh, it ends with Jason Todd realizing that the only way that their own, their next play, they got no choice. They, he's got to, he's got to get more Lazarus resin and the only person he can get it from is Batman. And he promised Batman that he, <laughs> he promised Batman that he wouldn't cause any more problems. <laughs> so and we know that Jason Todd is going to be breaking that promise. And so much happens in this issue. It's an adrenaline rush. It's go, go, go. I, I almost wish it was divided into two issues. Matthew Rosenberg here has done a really good job, uh, you know, despite the, you know, he almost should have more real estate. He He's crammed a lot of ad- adventure and action into this and it, it actually works. It feels, it, it feels like if you were watching a movie, it's like you're, you're in a cut scene, you're, you're watching, you know, different, 
different uh, battles, like one after the other, in, in, intercut in the editor's room, and it just it feels that way. And it's not just we have that we have action sequences. We've got we've got uh, we we've got conversations that are meaningful. Bane and Solomon Grundy, for God's sakes. We got Jerry Powers and Two Face. So we've got we've got diplomatic standoffs here and conversations and arguments as well as battle sequences, and. This really works, and and um, you know I'm I have to admit I'll admit to some confusion. I do have to reread this, but but it was fun. Uh, J- Matthew Rosenberg is really good at the humor with Jason Todd and the humor, and the dialogue is really good. I got to give Rosenberg compliments on the dialogue because the dialogue pulls me in. So even when I'm not entirely clear, I'm I can't remember quite I can't remember a plot point. The dialogue keeps me entertained while I'm, and it makes me forget the fact that maybe I'm not entirely clear what I read in the previous issue. But I'm encouraged to go back and reread it, which is what I want a comic book to do. It makes me, you know, I want to understand what's going on. And so uh, for a guy like me who reads a lot of comic books, that's a high compliment that I can give this comic. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I love this series. It's so good. You bring in Jack Herbert on art, which I, I think he's a superstar in the making. His art's so good. Reminds me a little bit of Ivan Reis. Um, just the detail and the storytelling, the way he zooms in, silhouettes, dynamic fighting. Like, oh, I just love the uh, visual choices that he that he makes. Um, breaks panels when he needs to, pulls back when he needs to. I mean, I just think he's he's fantastic. Probably the 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 artist working in comics right now more than any other whose name I don't hear often enough. Like. I, he's just, he's just amazing. He's so, so good. So I will, I'll read anything that he, that he draws, you know, because it, it, just looking at his art is, is a pure joy in terms of the narrative, uh, the, the uh, scripting. Yeah, you're right. It's so fast paced, so fast paced. I go back and forth. I, there are times where I think, yeah, I wish this had a little more room to breathe, but I think part of the reason that this whole series has been working so well is the fast pace that we've gotten right from the start. Matthew Rosenberg hasn't given us a chance to catch our breath. It's just one thing onto the next, onto the next, the next challenge and what have you. And I think what it does more than anything is it shows us just how in over his head Jason Todd is in this situation. He's handling it pretty well. Um, but now to your point, uh, plot point, when you're talking about the plot point, it's to the point where he, he doesn't have any outs left. Like he's been kind of, you know, bobbing and weaving and shucking and jiving and doing whatever he could to kind of keep the wheels on the bus and uh, not to mix my metaphors, but, you know, just to keep the team together and, and keep it moving forward toward their goal. And now he's kind of run out of options. And yeah, I mean, he basically told Batman, leave me alone to, to do my thing. You got to trust me. And now come to find out, He's got to go to Batman for help, yep. except he knows Batman's not going to turn over Lazarus resin. If Bat, if Bruce has any inclination that what Jason Todd's going to do to this Lazarus resin is give it to Bane and give it to Man Bad and give it to Mister Freeze or or whoever, right? Give it to these supervillains. So yeah, they're going to have to go in and and <laughs> and steal it. So I mean, this is so fun. It's like a big action-packed blockbuster movie with heist undertones and yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't sure when this started, how long it was going to last. We still don't know how long it's going to last. I haven't seen a final solicitation. There, there's no, you know, seven of 12 or anything, 
on the cover telling us it's going to end. Could this just keep going indefinitely? I mean, to me, this is what a Suicide Squad should be, much more so than uh, what we get in Task Force X with, with the threat of people dying. In this book, people really do die. Granted, they come back, um, but they do die, or they're just standing there and have limbs falling off, like when Bane's just standing there and they've given him not quite enough Lazarus resin and his hand falls off, <laughs> drops to the floor, and Jason Todd's like, like you know, like, really, guys? Yeah, <laughs> Bane's falling apart here. Yeah, so that was yeah. a, a fun moment. So yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the series. I, I don't hear enough people talking about this book, so I'm worried that the sales aren't great, uh, and they should be. They deserve to be because this is such a fun book. Yeah, I, I want to give a shout out. It was a missed opportunity by artist Eddie Burrows. Uh, in the pages of uh, Batman Damned, we had the first appearance of the famous Batwang. We almost see Jason Todd's privates almost here but all we see is his bomb but we we do know that amelia and her sister are are intentionally trying to look away i thought it, it's a hilarious scene jason todd is sitting there talking to both of them and they're both looking away and they're trying not to look at him because he clearly is naked in front of them i thought it was a very funny scene and i and i'm sure very intentionally done and i just couldn't help but uh, think of the uh, batwang controversy seeing that so uh i I'm, I'm sure they had a lot of fun with that but it's stuff like that that uh, you know, you know, for for longtime readers, and when you're familiar with past controversies, and you see when you see scenes like that, it, it's it's little things like that that are just in the art, not in the dialogue that I that really make the reading this so enjoyable. And when it's so action packed, and and if you, you know, action packed, the only way to not read this comic book fast is to intentionally slow yourself down as a reader because so much is happening. And that's a, that's a very pleasant challenge to, to have in, in this issue. It's, it, it's been, it was well scripted and choreographed overall. Yep. I agree. Okay. Up next we have flashpoint beyond number one written by Jeff Johns, Jeremy Adams, and Tim Sheridan art is by Zermanico, except that we do have a couple pages at the end by Mikhail Yanin pages 27 and 28. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. colors the bulk of the issue, and then those Yanin pages are colored by Jordi Belair. Rob Lee on the letters, cover by Mitch Garrids. There's another uh, variant by Zermanico. Nick Bradshaw and Nathan Fairbairn give us a variant, and then uh, a one of 50 variant by Todd Nock and Matt Herms, which is pretty awesome. So I don't know what to think about this. Uh, if, it definitely feels like it's rehashing some of what we got in the Flashpoint Zero in terms of, hey, if you've never read Flashpoint, um, we're gonna kind of explain that the Atlanteans and the Themyscarians are at, at war. Uh, we're gonna kind of give you this idea of this, um, this very cynical, depressing world, not unlike the world of, of Watchmen in a lot of ways. Uh, so that's kind of the first third of the issue. And then we get Batman breaking into Aquaman's stronghold to not necessarily rescue Wonder Woman, but he needs Wonder Woman's lasso because he needs to find out who killed, killed Barry Allen, right? That's what we saw in, in issue zero. Batman, Thomas Wayne, Batman, needs to find out who hired Aquaman because that was what Scavenger told him. Um, he was hired by somebody. Who's who's trying to stop the, the, the true DC universe from being restored? How is it that this Flashpoint universe that's not supposed to exist even exists again in in the first place. That's basically the whole the whole story. Um, it's well paced. It's well illustrated, but there's not a whole heck of a lot that happens because again, I think the first thirty issue or so 
is sort of dedicated to getting people up to speed if they're not up to speed on what the Flashpoint universe is. Um, there's a very visceral moment where Wonder Woman, because Batman <coughs> untied her and used her lasso to try to get the truth out of Aquaman, and the truth was Aquaman didn't have anything to do with the assassination, so we still don't know who hired Scavenger. But Wonder Woman, uh, they assume that, she, okay, now she's untied, she's just going to escape and go rally the Themyscarians in Europe, but not before she takes the time to take Aquaman off the table, which it, it makes 100% sense if you're a head of state at war with another uh, country, another nation, uh, like Themyscarians, you're Diana of the Themyscarians, you have a chance to take out Arthur of the Atlanteans, you're already inside their defenses because you've been captured and now you've, you've escaped, but you're still inside their stronghold. 100% you go and take out Aquaman. So uh, I did I did appreciate the um, the choice the aesthetically that, uh, that Jeff Johns made there. Uh, the art is really interesting. Zermatico's art is, he's very much in that classic DC style, but the colors of this, they're so saturated um, and dark to give this, sell this idea of this world as something that's, you know, this isn't a happy-go-lucky, you know, blue sky kind of world. This is a world where things feel like they're winding down. Um, and so I, I think the color work really by Ramulo Farada Jr. really sells that. So I wanted to specifically shout out him uh, in, individuals. So, yeah, I enjoyed this. Thought it was pretty solid. What do you think, Rocky? I really liked it. I, and I really liked the choice of Zermanico uh, uh, do, doing the art for the Flashpoint universe and having Mikel Janin do uh, the, the the mainstream DC universe with uh, Batman with with Bruce Wayne Batman and 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 uh, the Flash. I it's very curious, you know the bat the Batman uh, the Flashpoint Beyond Zero issue really focused on planting clues about the Clockwork Killer and 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 exploring the giving us a lot of background information. There's a lot of curious narrative choices here that makes me wonder where this narrative might be going. I was really surprised at the amount of emphasis given to Dexter, the the son of Two-Face, of Harvey Dent and his wife Gilda. Uh, Gilda's in Arkham Asylum. Two-Face, Harvey Dent has been killed. Dexter is now essentially, seems to be, it's almost as if Dexter is sort of like a quasi-adopted son here. And his butler, I mean, Thomas Wayne's butler is the penguin, is, is, is Cobblepot. And Cobblepot, you know, doesn't know how to raise Dexter. And and there's some really interesting but kind of twisted scenes with, with you know, Penguin, you know, Cobblepot, you know, teaching Dexter how to shoot a gun inside Wayne Manor. And, you know, what's very interesting about Thomas Wayne's characterization here is Thomas Wayne, we, we saw in the, in the zero issue, he's back to using lethal force again because Thomas Wayne is convinced that the Flashpoint universe should not exist. So he does not care what happens to it because as far as he's concerned, the Flashpoint universe shouldn't exist. It's an aberration. So he doesn't care. I think that's why he doesn't care about Dexter. He doesn't care about things. He doesn't even care when he frees Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman tells Batman, I'm going to, you know, get, you know, prepare Europe, tell others, tell Europe I'm coming for them. He doesn't care if Wonder Woman and the Amazons attack Europe. It doesn't matter to him because to him, it's all not supposed to happen. And Thomas Wayne is hell bent on eliminating the Flashpoint universe, uh, which was his original motivation in the original Flashpoint Paradox story. And so that's very, very interesting. Not only do we have a Thomas Wayne Flashpoint Batman who is back to using lethal force, but he doesn't care what he's got to do 
to achieve his ends, even if it means death and destruction, because at the end of the day, it's all in his mind, it's all going to not matter anyway. Nothing matters to him right now. And I find that very interesting. And it, it adds a very interesting element to the motivation of Thomas Wayne, because he can legitimately say, look, I can kill whoever I want because it really doesn't matter because we're all not supposed to be here anyway. This universe is not supposed to be here. And that adds that extra element to it. So not just not just that he wants to go after the clockwork killer, uh, but also whoever is behind this wants to maintain and has a motivation to maintain the Flashpoint universe in existence. But it's a mess of a universe, and and let's let's not forget we got we got we got uh, uh, potentially uh, Doctor Manhattan's uh, child or adopted child. Uh, Clark and Sally, and we got we got Watchmen universe overtones and overlaps here, and th there's so much. We we've got a a killer that knows the Clockwork Killer knows something about time travel, and is this connected to the Dark Universe or the Dark or the Dark Crisis? We don't know. So much is going on here, and these interested narrative sidelines. Man, I I love this. This was my favorite comic of of the week uh, because I'm 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 really curious to see where this is going. Yeah, really, really solid. I don't know if I could, if I'd call it my my favorite, but man, it was it was up there for sure. Um, all right, let's move on. Last book we're going to talk about in detail is Monkey Prince number four. This is from writer Jean Luen Yang. Bernard Chang does the art, colors by Chris Sotomayor, Dyke Ruan uh, on a variant cover, Michael Cho on a variant. Uh, Wes Abbott does the letters. Um, I'm not sure how long this. Um, this monkey prince is supposed to go. Does it say? Uh, it, do, it does. It says a limited series, but it, it just says issue four. It doesn't. Yeah, say issue four. So yeah, so not exactly sure, but <laughs> this does give some good closure as, as sort of a first arc with monkey prince finally getting a chance to talk to Batman and Robin and and uh, kind of get over his fear. He's been very fearful of of Batman, and that's caused some issues. So that's worked. And then at the end of the issue, his parents after being rescued by Monkey Prince himself and Batman and Robin, uh, and Joker's been captured, defeated. He's no longer the, the golden horn Joker. Uh, the parents have, have managed to get themselves another evil scientist-slash-henchman job, and just when uh, Monkey Prince starts to feel comfortable in Gotham, they're leaving. Um, so, <laughs> the poor, the, yeah, the poor guy who, who can't seem to make friends just when things seem to be turning a corner... He's uh, yeah, he's 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 moving again. So it kind of stinks for him, um, but it definitely is a way to keep the the story going. Um, I still I still feel like I, Marcus is hard for me to relate to. I'm not Asian. I don't have a knowledge of Chinese uh, mythology or folk folklore or whatnot. Um, so it's hard for me to relate to him on on that level. Uh, but I do appreciate his interactions with uh, Pig's Pig, who's sort of his, his mentor, his anthropomorphic pig, god, demigod, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that Jean Luan Yang is putting in this aspects of the struggle to fit in, to make friends, all that stuff that goes along with being in, in high school and whatnot. Because regardless of uh, whether I'm Asian or not, I can relate to Marcus on that level. So... Uh, there are some things here that that uh, are fun. I think the art by Bernard Chang is very dynamic. Um, but man, the thing I keep going back to is I really hope that uh, anybody who's of Asian descent who is a fan of Batman or DC Comics is reading this because 
I got to think that you're getting so much more out of it than, than I am because there's so much here um, in terms of what they're talking about with the folklore and the demons. And man, it just seems like it's such a rich um, area to mine for Gene Luen Yang. So um, I ran into him at WonderCon, told him I appreciated that he was putting that stuff in there. Uh, and he thanked me for that. I'm, I'm really hoping I could follow up with having him on the show to talk about it. But uh, I've reached out, but I haven't heard back. But um, so, yeah, this is this is good for me. But I imagine it, for somebody who can relate to it more than I can, it's probably great. So what do you what did you think, Rocky? Well, uh, to be quite blunt, I, I, I don't care about the Asian. I mean, uh, it, you know, Asian mythology, Japanese mythology, whatever it is. I don't care as long as it tells a good story. And, and, and I think it's. I'm now, I really love this premise. I, I, I find it interesting now because I, I have to admit the first couple issues, I didn't quite get this whole, you know, the monkey prince. He becomes the monkey prince. He loses his head. And I thought the mythology was a little bit wonky. But now as it's flushed out a little bit, now I'm getting a better appreciation for it. And I got to admit, I don't think that this premise has been done before. And if it has, people can correct me in the in the comments. But I love the idea that he doesn't know that his parents are villains or work for villains. And I love the fact that his parents are going from city to city looking for work as underlings to, to supervillains. And he doesn't know that. And his, he's actually fighting bad guys that his parents work for in every city that they go to. So I think the, the, ongoing, the ongoing issue of this series is going to be him not knowing his, that he's fighting against, ironically, his own parents half the time. I find that really a very interesting and funny kind of premise. And and this issue ends with, you know, this with them moving to Amnesty Bay. So this the next adventures that we're that we're likely going to be faced with is we're going to probably see Jackson Hyde and Mira and Aquaman or who, who knows the Aquaman family. And it's going to be I, I like the fact this is a very interesting way. I mean, usually it's the heroes that decide the adventures of the the protagonist. In this case, it's going to be the villains. So uh, what an interesting way to get different sets of villains and to explore the different villains than by having his parents actually work for various villains and he doesn't even know it. I think that's a actually a very ingenious idea. I don't think that's yeah, been think done he, before. I think, he, I think he actually discovered it in the third issue, though, because I think he does realize that it's his parents. But, yeah, obviously he doesn't know what this new job is that they're talking about moving to Amnesty Bay, doesn't know who they're – who they're working for. So yeah, it is. And he, <laughs> yeah. And he has any, yeah. And he has, he's, he's chosen not to confront his parents. I think he's a little bit in denial. Like, well, yeah, maybe they, they were working for the penguin, but you know, maybe it's not all bad or maybe he had the resources or the lab space or, or whatever. So yeah, there's definitely something going on there that he's still, that he's still going to have to confront. But anyways, I, I think it's it's very interesting and I uh, to, to, to basically take a, a mythology that has its own origins in another country and to sort of weave it into the DC universe like this, I think he's done a good job. And we're only four issues in. And so, you know, I want to give him full props. I he even he even made I thought it was ridiculous when the head flopped off at the end of the first issue. But he actually utilizes that ridiculous plot point by having Monkey Prince actually split in half where half of him's fighting one villain and while his other half rescues Batman in this issue. <laughs> I thought that was well done. And it's a, it's a silly thing, a silly kind of power to have that he can actually utilize his own fear to sort of like split himself and, you know, basically have his body parts 
fall off, but it actually works in in the wonkiness of the characters. And there's actually a, an in-story explanation for that. So, uh, again, uh, this is a fun comic, which is exactly what you expect from from a character like this, uh, as crazy as it is. So, full full props to Yun uh, Yang. Yeah, exactly. And and Bernard Chang as well for the, yeah, the visual Chang. storytelling. So, uh, so that's going to do it, everybody, for uh, the books. I think we talked about everything except for um, the CW tie-in, which we haven't talked about any of those because neither Rocky nor I talk about the, uh, the CW uh, or watch the CW shows. So uh, there is a Earth Prime DC Legends of Tomorrow, which just got announced as being canceled uh, along with the Batwoman show. So I think that just leaves Flash and Naomi on CW, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe uh, Stargirl. Does Stargirl come on CW or is it yeah, HBO? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not yeah. sure, but I know Stargirl's. Yeah. I think I don't think Stargirl's canceled, but yeah, Stargirl's not not canceled. But yeah, Batwoman and Legends of Tomorrow, Flash was uh, renewed. So anyway, like I said, I don't watch any of those shows. Neither does Rocky. So if that's your poison, then be sure you pick that up. Uh, along with that and the other single issues that we talked about, there's a couple of collections out today. Batman: The Dark Knight Detective, Volume Six, trade paperback. Uh, DC One Million Omnibus, collecting all those one million. Uh, annuals from a few years back written by Grant Morrison and then Tales of the Super Bets trade paperback that has a bunch of stories with Streaky the Cat and Crypto the Super Dog and Comet the Super Horse and all that kind of stuff so if that's your uh, particular predilection be sure you pick that up that's going to do it for this episode Rocky and I want to thank you all for joining us as always don't forget if you're listening to us on the audio only be sure you head over to YouTube do a search for Rocky's channel subscribe like this video ring that notification bell uh, so you know when new content comes out the name of the channel is comic space boom exclamation point so be sure to get your boom on and head over to youtube and do that conversely if you're checking us out on youtube and you don't listen to the audio only content that comes out from the comic source just go to your favorite uh, smart device or uh, app on that device do a search for the comic source and uh, podcasting app i should say do a search for the comic source subscribe that way you don't miss out on any of our audio only content so uh, i am Going to be on the road a lot over the next few weeks, everybody. So apologies for the sound not being quite what it usually is and the background being a little bit different. But uh, we're still committed to bringing you your uh, DC books every week. So uh, any last thoughts, Rocky? Uh, I'm uh, Despite the hiccups with DC, I, I, I like uh, – just a quick note. I like what Discovery is doing, canceling Batwoman, uh, rocking the boat a little bit with CD Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, I think DC, I choose to be optimistic. I think DC is going to continue to get better. I think Discovery's writing the ship, uh, choose, uh, is writing the ship of DC. And I hope to see some changes in DC in the next little bit. And in the meantime, uh, I think that uh, these comic books, uh, I think DC's doing a relatively decent job here. And I, I, I hope that readers can, uh, more, more readers give DC a chance here because I, I think that DC's, uh, I don't think DC, these DC comics are, are quite as, uh, are, are as uh, negative as some people are suggesting they are. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of good stories here. They just got to give them an opportunity uh, and give them a chance. Yep, agreed, hundred percent. So, if you guys can see this from Universal Studios, uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. 
but ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.